my sermon this morning is titled, Choking on the Breath of Life. Now, it is perhaps more psychological than spiritual, but in my world, those two disciplines are closely related. I'm going to talk about work and the stress of work. Yet as we move through the Yuletide and approach the new year, many of us rethink our lives, and if you do, I want to give you something to think about. Now, I expect that few of you have witnessed an autopsy. Theological students go through something called a CPE, or clinical pastoral education, as a part of our training. We are placed as a chaplain in a stressful situation, such as a hospital, a a rehab center, or a community agency, closely supervised and challenged by senior colleagues. It can be a difficult and transformative experience at a time of real personal change. I did my CPE in a medical center, and back in my day, we were supposed to witness a birth, a surgery, and an autopsy. That doesn't happen anymore as the rules around medical privacy have changed, and my observation is that contemporary theological students tend to have more delicate stomachs than they did in my day. Sorry, Tom. In my cohort, we all got through the surgery without having to leave the room. None of us got through the birth experience, (laughs) including me, and only about half of us got through the autopsy. He was a middle-aged man, or had been. He was in good physical shape. His weight was appropriate, and he had keeled over and died at his desk at work. The suspected cause of death was heart attack, but the autopsy showed his heart was fine. In fact, no cause of death could be found. His body was completely healthy, except, of course, for being dead. It's now called sudden unexpected death syndrome. We are seeing it more and more. It's become common enough that the International Codes for Disease, published by the World Health Organization, has given it a code number for medical records, R96.0. In Japan, it goes by the name Karoshi, and they translate that as death by overwork, occupational sudden death. It is literally choking on the breath of life, trying to do so much that your activity destroys you. First described in medical literature in 1969, Kiroshi became so common that in the 1980s, the Japanese Ministry of Labor began to track it. The report said it was recognized that employees cannot work for 12 or more hours a day, six to seven days a week, year after year, without suffering physically as well as mentally. It is common for the overtime to go unpaid, the report said. So does that job description sound familiar to any of you? 
How about we update it by adding the expectation of online availability, 24-7, 365? And that you, if you do that, you have the kind of work where antacid tablets become a major source of nutrition. In Japan, they do have a broader definition of what qualifies as unexpected death syndrome. They include deaths from heart attacks and stroke, but a lot of the deaths go unexplained, such as the autopsy I witnessed. There is a theory. You have two nervous systems in your body. The first is your central nervous system that you control consciously. The second is your autonomic nervous system, which controls all the things that take place without your awareness your breathing, your digestion, your heartbeat, and so on, which is most of what happens in your body. Your autonomic nervous system has two branches. The first is the sympathetic system, which basically controls activation of some part of your body. The second is the parasympathetic system, which controls the relaxation of some part of your body. We see both in the beating of your heart, contraction, release, contraction, release, activation, relaxation. Ideally, these two systems should always be in balance, but situational stress can change that. If these two systems get out of balance, you feel either anxious or fatigued. In a society where tranquilizers and antidepressant medication now outsells aspirin, these feelings are common. If these two systems get completely out of balance, your heart will stop. Sudden, unexpected death syndrome. In my office, when a person is hypnotized, electronic equipment monitors the client's autonomic nervous system, and that tells me many things, including how deeply the client is hypnotized. Over the past few years, when the computer spits out the client's report, more and more I see a lack of balance in the autonomic nervous system. I see it in about half my client these days. In one case, I sent the client directly from my office to the emergency room. What do you think my computer would say about you if I hooked you up? <laughs> Is your life in balance? Or are you so overstressed you're choking on the breath of life? Is your life so full of responsibility and care that you could not enjoy Emerson's refugilant summer? Are you in danger? You might be. On the 16th of this year, on August 16th of this year, the New York Times published a blistering article about the employment practices of the online retailer Amazon.com. Titled, Inside Amazon, Wrestling Big Ideas in a Bruising Workplace. Well, here's a quote. At Amazon, workers are encouraged to tear apart one another's ideas in meetings. Toil long and late. Emails arrive past midnight, followed by text messages asking why they were not answered and held to standards that the company boasts are unreasonably high. 
the internal phone directory instructs colleagues on how to send secret feedback to one another's bosses. Employees say it is frequently used to sabotage others. One former employee interviewed described that work, the workplace culture as, at Amazon.com as the place where overachievers go to feel bad about themselves. <laughs> Spokesperson for Amazon.com have disputed the story, but it rings true for me. Worse, I suspect the practices described in this article, such as forced employee ranking, encouraging anonymous complaints, and a complete disrespect for the private lives of employees are metastasizing to other workplaces if they haven't already. Fortunately, this isn't universal. There are good companies to work for that understand that happy employees are productive employees. But we've all heard of places that are white-collar sweatshops where overlords maintain control by intimidation. Places where the only acceptable status report to your boss is something along the lines of all targets met, all customers satisfied, all systems fully operational, all staff keen and well-motivated, all pigs fed and ready to fly. <laughs> Such a life cannot be part of God's plan. However, you understand God. It cannot possibly be a spiritually fulfilled life. It becomes an unholy thing. Many of you know I am a consulting hypnotist. You probably don't know that since the 1940s, hypnotism has been a union occupation with the AFL-CIO. As we all work for ourselves, we don't engage in collective bargaining. Instead, we are part of the AFL-CIO as that provides us with legislative clout to protect us from encroachment by other healthcare professionals. On the advisory board of the National Guild of Hypnotists, I carry the legislation and governmental concerns portfolio, and that makes me a union operative. They sent me for training at the George Meany campus of the National Labor College, just outside of Washington, D.C. The history of work was interesting because it documented that people have never in human history worked harder than we do today. When you count up all the festivals and feast days, you discover that a medieval peasant a sharecropper in his majesty's field had one day out of every three off. A third of the time, in the Middle Ages, people have never worked harder than they do now in America. And is it any wonder that stress-related illnesses have become the modern plague? When you are stressed, your body produces a hormone called cortisol. It is a precursor. When it's released, it causes a whole host of physical changes. When you are happy, your body produces a different hormone called DHEA, dehydroepiandrazone. It likewise produces a host of physical changes, all of which are good. 
In fact, if you're suffering from any sort of serious or chronic medical condition, everything I'll try to teach you if you were my client would be to maximize your production of DHEA, minimize your production of cortisol, because the DHEA is what triggers physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health and resilience. But there is a problem in the way the human body is designed. God did not do a very good job. Maybe as Woody Allen said, God's an underachiever. You know, he, he means well, but he just doesn't. Just... <laughs> the half-life of the stress hormone cortisol is 12 hours. That means when you have a negative reaction 12 hours later, half of that cortisol is still in your body. That's why when you try to go to sleep at night after a stressful day, you have trouble because half the cortisol you produced is still in your blood acting as a stimulant. It takes five half-lives, or 60 hours, for all of that cortisol to extinguish. So when you're stressed, it casts a biochemical shadow into your body that stretches out 60 hours. When you have too much of the stress hormone in your body, you are actually cortically inhibited. Your brain is not working effectively. That means you're not exactly the brightest crayon in the box, and the mistake you will make, even with the best of intentions, will be haunting you for some time, often producing even more cortisol. Unfortunately, the half-life of the renewing hormone, DHEA, is very brief, 15 to 38 minutes. That's why when you get stressed, you tend to stay stressed. When you feel good, it doesn't last. Now, in the human body, feelings travel faster than thought. When you have a negative experience, the emotional result is almost instantaneous. Then you think about it, and those thoughts might give you a better perspective, but by the time you've had those thoughts, the cortisol has already been produced and released into your blood. You can't work your way out of stressful situations. The work just produces more cortisol, which only increases your perception of stress, inhibits your thinking, and you find yourself trapped. The only way to win this game is not to play. But there is something you can do to prevent the whole cycle from getting started. And as we near the start of a new year, when a lot of us resolve to behave in a new way, I can think of nothing more appropriate to talk about. A thirsty cowboy walks into a bar. The bartender comes over and asks, do you want a drink? What are my choices, says the cowboy. Why, yes or no, says the bartender. <laughs> the point of that silly story is that most of us have more choices than we realize. We just don't think about it. Had the cowboy asked the bartender, what's the menu? he would have gotten a very different answer than he did get. We need to think about the range of choices that we have. 
We are not really passive victims of circumstance. We often do not recognize the choices we could make. We can't control what other people do or control what happens to us, but we can control what bait we rise to. The first step I have found is to define what success means to you. In my observation, both of myself and of my clients, many of us have let other people define success. It means living in the right neighborhood, having the right sort of car, being able to boast about the right sort of things to provide a softer life for our family. In service to that, we get into debt up to our eyeballs, ruin our health, spoil our kids, and make ourselves unhappy. Maybe a different definition of success is in order. About a year ago, a Japanese woman named Marie Kodo published a book that quickly climbed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was titled, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which I think is too trite a title for a pretty good book. It's a book about personal organization. She has taught personal organization for many years in Japan and has a large following. What is remarkable about her thought is that the people who follow it tend to keep using it for long periods of time. They don't just try it out for a while and then go back to their disorderly ways. Her system is based on three rules. First, go through all the things you have and get rid of anything you don't love. Give the other stuff away, throw it out, or sell it to some sucker, but don't keep anything you don't love. Second, find a place in your home for everything you love. Everything you own should have some place to be, and it should be a place you can keep. Finally, and this is the end of her system, when you use something, don't put it down, put it away. That's it. Reduce your possessions to beloved essentials. Have a place to store the beloved essentials. Always return a beloved essential to its home when you're finished using it. If you do that, you will never have a stack of stuff or a pile of files or anything disorderly in your home. As I've played with her ideas, I realize that her advice is applicable to more than just things. We can make the choice to apply it to feelings, memories, and people as well. I started to teach this in my clinics for cancer patients, and I was amazed at how stress levels dropped, even on objective <laughs> testing. Mentally go through your definition of success. As far as possible, keep the parts of it you really love. Drop the things you really don't care about, and you might discover that what you love about your life isn't what you thought. Mentally go through your relationships. As far as possible, keep the relationships you love. Regard the others as less important, or perhaps even complete. 
Not that they were bad, not that they were mistakes, but just that they're now over. Lindsay and I do this every New Year's Day. Over a glass of wine, or two, we, we run the list of our relationships and activities and ask ourselves about what sort of shape these are in. Do we need more or less time with these people? Is the relationship really over and it's time to move on? What about our work? Do we need to put in more energy or less? What are we willing to sacrifice to balance things out? And so on. I do this with emotional events too. I mentally go through my memories and recollections. Well, I can't decide to forget things, I can decide not to dwell on the things I do not love. When a bad memory surfaces, I find a way to distract myself and not dwell on it. I don't want that cortisol to get into my blood because all it does is mess me up and increase my stress. I don't want to be lying on a mortuary slab at too young an age while the medical examiner looks puzzled and says, Darn if I know why he's dead. No, thank you. Make a choice to dwell on the memories and recollections you love and change the channel in your mind when other memories or recollections intrude. Decide that you will no longer try to get even with people who've harmed you, nor plot what to do to even the score. Use your mind to think about the memories and recollections you love. It's your mind, after all. It will follow your rules. Have a place in your life for the people, memories, and recollections you love. Make time for the good relationships and less time for the others. Make time for the activities you love. Do something to remind yourself about the memories you love. I keep a list in my journal and a collection of positive mementos in my meditation area. I have a place for these things in my life. Curate your interior life so you do not lose sight of the fact that your life is supposed to be for your benefit. While it's great to help out others, you should not be harming yourself in the process. If you are, maybe that job, that relationship, those responsibilities are not wise. Maybe a change of pace, a downshifting, a lightening of the load, or a change in priorities is in order. People will let you harm yourself to enrich themselves, but you don't have to let them. And perhaps that concept is important enough to bear repeating. Your life is supposed to benefit you. It's good if it also benefits others, but primarily you are on this planet to have a fulfilling life yourself, according to the way you honestly define that. A fulfilled life is where you are relaxed and happy. It might be successful by the standards of other people or not, but we are here to breathe deeply the breath of life, not choke on it. And that's my sermon. And now may the truth that makes us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen. So it is done. <laughs>